All right, we are back. Let's do a little more science here. Sad, uh, sad bit of reporting from the Center for Disease Control. Apparently, public health warnings to use condoms and to practice safe sex are having no measurable effect on our epidemic of genital herpes. One in six Americans is infected with the virus, according to a new study. It's noted that uh, herpes simplex 2 can cause blisters and sores on genitals and can be transmitted even when there are no active symptoms. Evidence currently is that about 80% of people infected with the virus don't even know it. I find that, that number a little bit hard to believe, but again, the idea is that, you know, whenever possible, you should practice safe sex. I mean, for the most part, herpes is, is an annoyance, but uh, the evidence is that the breaks in the skin you know, can make it much more likely, at least the studies show three times more likely to contract HIV. And a startling item from the BBC, China is apparently facing a diabetic epidemic. According to the BBC, rapid economic growth has affected public health through urbanization, changed diets, and more sedentary lifestyles, according to researchers that uh, wrote an article up for the New England Journal of Medicine. The article said this represents a major public health problem for Chinese authorities. Noting, quote, in the last 10 years, with the country's economy expanding quickly and people's standard of living improving, people's lifestyles have changed. China's economic development has gone from a situation of of poverty to having enough food and warm clothes and doing much less exercise, one doctor told uh, the AFP news agency. I'd like to know more about this. I find it fascinating that you're seeing a sudden epidemic of diabetes in China as a result of lifestyle changes. It certainly reinforces what a lot of people think, that uh, one of the best ways we can deal with diabetes and a lot of other problems is to eat less and exercise more. One thing we don't talk a lot about in this program are computer models. People who do a computer model and try and tell you what the universe was like 15 seconds after the Big Bang are folks I, I just don't have any patience with. Recent study on plants gives some idea why. Well, apparently biologists that have studied uh, plants have always noted that the, the trunk, branch, and twig system of a tree are just, are just no accident. It works great, and they've done some mathematical formulas that suggested it's the best and least wasteful way of designing a distribution network. But if you go to look at leaves, and surely you've done this, you note that they have a different architecture. The veins in a leaf cross-link, and they loop. Naturally, someone tried to just, naturally someone studied this with a computer model. They were curious because they thought from an evolutionary point of view that loops were inefficient because there's redundancy in a loop network. But uh, once they studied it, they realized that, well, that's only true if the demand for water and nutrients are constant. If there's fluctuating demands, that the loops allow for a more uh, nuanced delivery system. Flows can be rerouted through the network in response to local pressures in the environment, such as different evaporation rates in different parts of the leaf. Now that folks have woken up to this, they realize that the leaf represents a resilient distribution network, and the principles of a leaf uh, might be, you know, well applied to electricity grids. And it's true, no matter what problem you're looking at uh, out there in the world, it seems like nature has found a solution. You just have to kind of pay attention to what nature's done. All right, we've only got a few minutes left in today's program. Let's do a few um, obituaries. We've been meaning to talk about the passing of Charlie Wilson who was, to be sure, a most colorful and amusing character. In fact, I have to say, Tom Hanks's portrayal of him in the movie version of George Cryle's book, Charlie Wilson's War, does not do the man justice. 
Noted The Economist, there was a side to Charlie Wilson which few knew about until the publication in 2003 of George Crile's book. It was he who organized and largely procured the money for the CIA's most successful covert operation. I think the, the covert should be in quotes on that one. And backing in the 1980s of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in their war against the Soviet invaders. He did so with all the guile he could muster, maneuvering himself with help from the pro-Israel lobby, onto the Appropriations Committee, and thence onto two crucial subcommittees dealing with foreign ops. Of course, the idea that a multi-billion dollar operation was covert needs to be addressed, along with the fact, uh, which didn't really show up on the screen in, in the version of Charlie Wilson's war, was that uh, out of the war in Afghanistan came 9-11. It's also not generally known by the public, but, admit, but was admitted to by Zbigniew Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, was that um, the U.S. really tried to bait the Soviets into invading Afghanistan and were delighted when they took the bait. The U.S. had been operating covert uh, destabilization operations in Afghanistan with, with the hope that the, that the Russians would come in, they would invade, and they would then have their own Vietnam. Zbigniew Brzezinski still defends this, saying, well, it, it helped hasten the end of the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, what's, uh, what was worse, your Cold War superpower adversary or a bunch of angry Arabs? Well, I think we now know that a bunch of angry Arabs in the wake of 9-11 uh, has turned out to be something to reckon with. And there certainly are an, an awful lot of people out there who think the Soviet Union's end was, uh, was not far off, uh, you know, with or without a war in Afghanistan. I think we'll have to talk about that in greater depth in some future program. But we also have to mention the passing of Al Haig. Al Haig is widely credited by many as actually having been President of the United States in the waning days of the Nixon administration. William Saxby, Nixon's Attorney General, was quoted as saying that uh, Haig was the president toward the end. He held that office together. With Nixon distraught and despondent uh, as he was under siege from Watergate, indeed, it was Al Haig that uh, kept things together. Henry Kissinger, who was Al Haig's mentor and master in the Nixon White House, uh, said the nation owed Haig a debt of gratitude for steering the ship of state through dangerous waters in the final days of the Nixon era. Said Kissinger, by sheer willpower, dedication, and self-discipline, he held the government together. When Ronald Reagan took office, he made Al Haig his secretary of state. Al Haig was best known for his actions in the wake of Ronald Reagan's attempted assassination on March 30th in 1981. After Reagan was shot, Al Haig uh, went to the White House press room, sweating, his hands shaking, said, as of now, I'm in control here in the White House pending return of the vice president. When someone questioned that, Haig uh, advised reporters to read their constitution. It turned out he was, in fact, fourth in line for the top spot. But he tried to say later, well, I was in control in the White House Situation Room, pending the return of the Vice President. And I'm sure he was. The Vice President at that time was George Herbert Walker Bush, a man who for eight years in the Reagan White House was never known to have uttered a word during cabinet meetings. In spite of the fact that he was one of the wimpiest men probably ever to hold the undistinguished office of Vice President of the United States, eight years later, sadly, George Herbert Walker Bush became President. And even more sadly, his son <laughs> stole the presidency in the year 2000. But I think we won't go into that too much today. 
And by the way, the opinions heard on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. And uh, final obituary of the day, we note the passing of General Robert White, a man who shot through the skies in a rocket-powered X-15 airplane nearly 50 years ago. He was the first man to break Mach 4, also the first man to break Mach 5, and the first to break Mach 6. Robert White was a member of, of a select group of test pilots at Edwards Air Force Base in the 1950s and early 1960s who pushed the limits of developmental aircraft. When the rocket-powered X-15 came online, he was designated at its chi- as its chief test pilot. White had been shot down out of his P-51 aircraft over Germany in early 1945 and spent a couple of months in a prisoner of war camp before being liberated. White was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame in 2006. And he, of course, was a part of that pioneering group detailed in writer Tom Wolfe's novel and subsequent movie, The Right Stuff, about the early stages of America's space program. Sorry to note uh, that the passing of Robert White took place just after we had a chance to speak with uh, General Chuck Yeager, so we didn't have uh, the opportunity to ask him about General White. But, believe you me, we had plenty of other interesting things to talk about, and we'll try and bring you uh, much of that interview on next week's program. Chuck Yeager is an American hero and a remarkable individual, and it was a great privilege for Mr. McMillan and I to be able to sit down and chat with him for the benefit of you, dear listener. All right, looks like we actually do have about a minute left, so I just want to note an item from The Economist. It's a new book out called Contested Will, Who Wrote Shakespeare by James Shapiro. The month of April, of course, marks the birth date of the author Shakespeare, better known as Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford. I would note in saying that uh, the Mr. McMillan is somewhat partial toward Francis Bacon, but I've just quoted a bit from The Economist uh, reviewing the new book by James Shapiro, Contested Will, who wrote Shakespeare. James Shapiro follows his award-winning book on William Shakespeare, 1599, with an unlikely subject, an investigation into the old chestnut that Shakespeare wasn't the man who wrote the works. Most mainstream Shakespeareans stand aloof from it, but apparently the claims of Francis Bacon, Edward de Vere, and Christopher Marlowe, among others, are on the rise. An appetite for conspiracy theories, combined with a call for balance from some sectors of academe, and the rise of the Internet have given the thing new life. Respectable audiences turn up to listen to lectures on it. The controversy is even taught at university level. Well, dear Economist magazine, yes, as it should be. Apparently, since James Shapiro can't present a credible case for uh, the man from Stratford-on-Avon as having been the author, he resorts to attacking the people who first came up with the idea that there was something fishy about the whole idea. Having said that, we need to refer you to our archives for our interview with Mark Anderson, who had a lot to say on this subject based on his book, Shakespeare by Another Name. We'd also refer you to the excellent uh, book by William Sobrand titled Alias Shakespeare. But we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. The girl.
rules today in society Go for classical poetry So to win their hearts one must quote with ease Aeschylus and Euripides One must know Homer and believe me both Sophocles, also Sappho Unless you know Shelley and Keats and Pope Dainty Debbies will call you a dope But the poet of them all who will start them simply raven Is the poet people call The part of Stratford on Avon Brush up your Shakespeare Start quoting him now Brush up your Shakespeare And no women you will wow Just declaim a few lines from Otella And they'll think you're a hell of a fella if your blonde won't respond when you flatter her, tell her what Tony told Cleopatra. If she fights when her clothes you are mussing, what are clothes much ado about nothing? Brush up your Shakespeare, and they'll all 